This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Long-term listeners of The Missing will know that in the past we've explored several John and Jane Doe cases, investigations where the authorities have a body, but what's missing is the identity. Today we're bringing you one such case, a 28-year-old murder investigation sparked by the discovery of a body floating in the North Sea and referred to by one of the investigators as the coldest of cold cases. Whilst the facts of the case have not changed a great deal in the near three decades since the body was found, the means to investigate them further very much have. So join me as I meet the experts attempting to solve a crime of the past with the tools of the present, and listen for how you can possibly play a part in helping them find the answers to a mystery years in the making. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, The Gentleman. July the 11th, 1994. It's just after 8.30 in the morning. A German police boat is on patrol in the North Sea. They're conducting routine environmental checks of the waters in an area about 20 kilometres northwest of Helgoland, a small archipelago that forms part of the German state of Schleswig-Holstein. It's a calm summer's day with what seasoned sailors might describe as a smooth sea. Suddenly, one of the crew spots something in the water boat changes course to investigate. As they draw closer, the object, bobbing gently on the surface, comes slowly into focus. It's the body of a man, 
and he's floating face down in the water. The captain instructs his crew to bring the body aboard. The man is tall and of slim build and looks between 45 to 50 years old. Once the crew have gotten over their initial shock of finding a body this far out to sea, three things immediately draw their attention. The first is the man's clothing. He's well-dressed, in a shirt, tie and loafers. Second is the condition of his body. The man has visible injuries to both his head and upper body and, judging from the rate of decomposition, appears to have been in the water for quite some time. The last, and perhaps most perplexing detail, is the fact that the body has been weighted down. As the engine roars back into life and the boat begins the journey back to land, the crew are all asking themselves the same questions. Who is this man and what has happened to him? Almost 30 years later, those questions remain unanswered. From the beginning of the investigation, there were no doubts that this was a murder case. That's the voice of Carsten Bettels. Carsten is detective director at the Police Academy of Lower Saxony in northwest Germany, where he draws on his 43 years of experience as a detective to train the next generation of police officers. The case of the uh, unknown dead man from the North Sea was brought to me in spring of 2021 by the head of the homicide department from Wilhelmshaven. The man who contacted Carsten was a detective named Joachim Kohler. Like Carsten, Joachim is himself a veteran of the police force. He was brought onto the North Sea body investigation in 1996, two years after it was first discovered, and has since spent a quarter century wrestling with the details of this case, trying to decipher the identity of the man recovered from the water. Early last year, Joachim heard news of the International Cold Case Analysis Project, or ICAP, that Carsten had been running with students in the Lower Saxony Police Academy. Since 2014, I've been conducting special courses on cold case analysis with our bachelor students. And in the meantime, uh, we have analysed more than 30 cold cases. The aim of the initiative is to further the education of students across an array of disciplines, whilst at the same time devoting additional resources and fresh eyes to cold cases. The ICAP programme has grown since its inception to include participation from the charity Locate International, who listeners of The Missing will be well acquainted with by now, as well as cooperation with experts and students in universities across Europe and Australia. But before we talk about what's happening now, let's return to that police boat on July the 11th, 1994, and hear what happened next in Joachim's words, translated for us with the help of Carsten. The captain decided to take him to Lower Saxony. Uh, there were two towns uh, where it was possible to bring the body. One was Cuxhaven. This uh, is at the east of Lower Saxony. And the other city was Wilhelmshaven. 
The captain chose Wilhelmshaven because it had a military base which would allow him to keep the body out uh, of view of the public. The boat, along with its unusual cargo, arrived at their destination at around 2pm. The coastal town of Wilhelmshaven is now home to around 75,000 people and is the site of Germany's largest naval base. When the body arrived into Wilhelmshaven, it was placed in a transport box because it was already displaying signs of late decay and uh, was not able to be examined at that moment. The first order of business was to carry out an autopsy. The death body was brought to a facility in Oldenburg for autopsy. The autopsy showed some very clear signs of an external force on the body with fractures on the skull and the upper part of the body and this was a clear sign that it was an external force that had caused the death of the man. The possibility of suicide was explored but quickly ruled out. Alternative considerations are always to be taken into account in police investigations. But this has been a murder investigation for about 28 years. The next step was to try and determine where the body had originated from. The man had no identification on his person, no passport or wallet that could tell investigators his name or nationality. As such, the only clues the German authorities had to work with were where the body was found and, of course, the man's physical appearance. At the time uh, of his death, the man was probably around 45 to 50 years old. Uh, this means he was likely born during, during the midst to late uh, 1940s. If he was alive now, he would be in his early 70s. The man was tall, standing at 6 foot 5 inches and slim, weighing somewhere in the region of 11 to 12 stone. But his physical attributes, while important, were far less illuminating than his clothing. He wore navy trousers made in France and a long-sleeved light blue shirt. He was wearing a tie with a basic color dark blue with different color diagonal stripes. And the tie was a 100% wool tie with a label in English and French language and he wore leather loafers, uh, black or navy blue, UK size 11. The shoes were relatively expensive and were made for the English shoe manufacturer Church & Co. Limited. Not only was the man wearing clothes that appeared to be English in origin, his footwear exhibited signs of repairs carried out in the UK. The shoes had been resold with Philips soles and had replacement heels manufactured by Dinky Heel PLC Bristol with the inscription ITS Jubilee and a stylist crown. Based on this evidence, the authorities began operating under the assumption that this man was likely British or at the very least had some connection to Britain. This was just a starting point. His potential nationality, only a small piece in the larger puzzle of his identity. What was his profession? Was he a businessman doing some international travel perhaps? 
he certainly looked the part. And who might have cause to harm him? Was there money involved? Was it a case of a deal gone badly wrong? His physical appearance is certainly striking with his unusual size and yet almost lanky looking body. Everything looks like the man comes from the middle of society and must be missing somewhere. The man's clothing, along with the hypothesis that he came from the middle of society, later earned him the nickname The Gentleman. Next, they needed to determine when and where the journey that had ended with him dead and floating face down in the North Sea had started. So, the body showed signs of decomposition. It had clearly been in the water for some time. But for how long exactly? With the resources available to them in the mid-90s, it was a figure for which the forensic specialists could only provide a rough guess, estimating him to have been in the sea for several months to half a year. This meant that the gentleman likely went missing sometime between the end of 1993 and the first six months of 1994. The death body was found far offshore in the deep North Sea. It was very unusual for a body to be found around 25 kilometers west of Helgoland in this area. The police didn't know how the body came to be where it was found. There were lots of possibilities. He could have been thrown from a ship near the location where he was found. The police didn't know if he'd come from the German island nearby or if he'd floated from Great Britain. Usually in this area of the North Sea, there is a stream that comes from the west, so the water and the waves normally go from, from west to east and not the other direction. And so um, there was a higher probability that the deaf person was floated from the west to the place where he was found. This led authorities to believe that the man was likely to have entered the water closer to the United Kingdom than to Germany. Joachim's first instinct was to look into shipping routes in the North Sea that lined up with where the body was found. He theorised that if he could identify a ship that had had a passenger go missing, which had also passed through the relevant area in the months leading up to the gentleman's discovery, he might be able to identify the man. On German ships, the owner of the ship is responsible for informing the police about anyone who falls overboard. By foreign ships, things get more complicated. There was no single universal telephone number all ships call when someone goes overboard those days. This meant that there was no single database of people who had gone missing from ships in this area that Joachim could draw from. He decided to find out how many ships had undertaken this route in the six months before the body was discovered. That figure was an eye-watering 60,000, far too many to investigate on a case-by-case -case basis. There's also, of course, the added problem that if this was indeed a murder, as they suspected, his disappearance was unlikely to have been reported in the first place. On top of these logistical obstacles, Joachim and his team had other issues to contend with. 
From the forensic side, DNA analysis was still in its infancy in Germany uh, back in the mid-19s. Of course, investigators uh, at the time uh, were also eager to apply new methods to the facts of the case. For example, after a few years, they managed to conduct follow-up investigations and extract a so-called mtDNA pattern. This is the uh, mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited exclusively on the mother's side. This at last made it possible to match the unknown death person with specific uh, missing person cases in order to rule out the possibility that the dead person was a specific missing person. Armed with the mtDNA that they were able to obtain from the body, Joachim approached the UK authorities, asking if they could compare his sample with those in their missing persons database. Asking if they could use the mtDNA samples that had obtained to check the identify of the man against the UK databases. They responded saying they would need the core DNA to make this inquiry, which Akim unfortunately did not have. Core or nucleic DNA is completely unique to an individual outside of identical siblings. mtDNA sequences, on the other hand, are frequently identical between different people. The occurrence of a match between a person's mtDNA and mtDNA found at a crime scene only implies their presence there rather than confirming it. Joachim was able to use the mtDNA sample to conduct searches in Germany, however. Akim looked at uh, the German missing person database and after excluding everyone shorter than 1.9 meters in height, he compared the remaining cases with the mtDNA but found no matches. After hitting a wall with the DNA evidence, the investigation died down somewhat, leaving the authorities with many unanswered questions and half-formed hypotheses. Joachim chipped away at the case for years, at one point seeking the help of a facial reconstruction expert from the FBI to create a likeness of the gentleman. He also had the sediment found in his clothing tested. In the clothing, there was some sand and sediments in the socks and in the trousers. Akim had uh, them analyzed to see if they could tell us anything about where the body came from, but they were from the North Sea and nothing more. Eventually, in the spring of 2021, Joachim, nearing retirement and wanting to do anything he could to solve this case, reached out to Carsten. Since the time of the discovery of the unknown death body, new forensic methods have emerged as well. For example, uh, was there any thought of isotope analysis to determine a person's origin? Furthermore, uh, methods of facial reconstruction with the support of computers have also improved since then. In addition to the educational benefit it provides to the students involved, ICAP exists to attempt to bring closure to the family members of long-term missing and murdered people. 
Carsten has plenty of experience with both. In the case of the gentleman, there was no family that they knew of. Simply a man without a name, who had been buried in an unmarked grave, likely hundreds of miles from home. A man who had likely been the victim of a brutal crime. A man who needed justice. It was for these reasons, along with the aforementioned technological advancements, that Carsten felt the case of the North Sea body would be a worthwhile one for the ICAP to examine. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We were put into teams um, to work on different aspects of the case in the sense that we all had the case file and we all then um, focused on different elements within the case file to see where if there's new new strategies, new techniques, what we thought would be best to progress the case. That's Jerry, a third-year forensic investigation student at Plymouth Mahjong University and a participant in the ICAP team looking into the North Sea case. I was tasked with looking into phenotyping to see if that might help with a new facial reconstruction. 
phenotyping is where they take measurements from um, the skull um, of a person and they can put it into a 3D image um, with different cameras and different angles to actually build up a true picture rather than a grayscale picture. So it looks actually like a human face rather than a grayscale drawing. You can see the newly created facial reconstruction for the gentleman on our website, themissingpodcast.org. Another test that did not exist when the body was first found back in 1994 was isotope analysis. It can be a valuable tool when you're identifying a victim um, because you can use samples from the teeth, bone and hair. Um, You can predict the origin of the victim. So with sort of data analysis, um, you can get specific predictions from regions of birth, um, long-term adult residency and sort of recent travel and history. A CT scan and further DNA analysis were also desired tests. In order for these to be carried out, the body would need to be exhumed. After presenting the reasons for doing so to the German prosecutors, approval was granted and the body of the gentleman, who had been buried in Wilhelmshaven since 1994, was exhumed in December of last year. This part of the process called for the expertise of Professor Caroline Sturdy-Coles, another expert participant in the case via the ICAP. I'm a professor of conflict archaeology and genocide investigation at Staffordshire University, and I also direct the Staffordshire University Cold Case Unit. Professor Sturdy-Coles came to be involved because of her own experience with unidentified bodies and missing person cases. Obviously, the way that you you exhume a body um, impacts upon its condition. Um, And and obviously, when it then comes to autopsy, there needs to be um, certain methods that would be carried out in order to um, help identify that person. So part of my role in this cold case, for example, um, was was speaking with the the specialists on site about the exhumation methodology and um, talking to them about what they were doing and why they were doing it, and then also sort of advising on on other other um, aspects in terms of the identification and sort of post analysis of the body. Because of restrictions related to COVID nineteen, Professor Sturdy Coles and her students observed via video link as the body was exhumed. A very delicate and painstaking process. It's about being extremely cautious during the the recovery process, um, excavating very slowly, systematically, making sure that um, if, for example, the body is within a a coffin or a body bag, that um, you are still extremely cautious because obviously holes might be present, especially over time as as the coffin, etc. breaks down. So it's about making sure that you recover the contents of, of a coffin for example um but also then that once the the coffin is then removed that you're searching the area around the coffin as well to make sure that no small bones or um any other types of evidence may well have been left within the grave because obviously the 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 most important um, aspect of the exhumation is to to give dignity to the individual and therefore to recover the body um in in a way that is complete and 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 ethical and uh, and giving them uh, obviously the respect they deserve So what were the goals of the exhumation and autopsy? So one of the crucial things uh, that we we were aspiring to do with the exhumation was to extract DNA from the body that could hopefully uh, be analysed and matched with what we call an anti-mortem DNA sample. So either a DNA sample from from that individual 
um, before they died if one was was collected. So so they were they were um, uh, announced as a missing person, and and maybe some of the, their objects were you know belongings were given over to the police. There is a possibility, of course, that they may already have that person's DNA on record because of that or because they had a criminal record or something like that. I mean, that's less likely, again, given the time period of the case. What's more likely, of course, is that we could get a familial DNA match, that if somebody recognised the um, individual from the facial reconstruction, came forward, thought that they might know the person um, and was willing to give a DNA sample, then we could we could potentially to create that match. So forensic anthropology as a discipline has obviously advanced greatly in terms of facial reconstruction, but also stature estimation, um, better estimating the age of an individual. And all of that allows us to, to create a more detailed profile and hopefully therefore put out information in the media that will be more accurate as to as to who that victim was um, and and things about how they live their life, you know, perhaps previous injuries they may have sustained, um, all of that. We just, we just, you know, forensically, we've just got better at, at, at all, of, all of those things, really, as well as the more analytical laboratory-based techniques that might tell us more about where an individual was from or where they spent time during their life. Another line of inquiry pursued by the Staffordshire students was a comparative study to help determine the length of time that the body had been in the water. The comparison uh, with bodies that died uh, in an accident involving a Belgian freighter and were then found in the North Sea many months later. This case was described in the literature and was introduced by the Staffordshire students. And the comparison with the so-called adipose was instructive with our uh, unknown death body to consider its lying time was in the range of at least several months. Whilst awaiting the results of their new forensic inquiries, the next step for the investigative team was to create a fresh public appeal for information regarding the gentleman. One might be forgiven for thinking that such an appeal would amount to nothing more than a photo and some accompanying text. Whilst that approach might have been sufficient in '94. When the gentleman was first discovered, the psychology behind successful appeals has moved on since then. Our goal, of course, is to try and identify who he is. So we used various different aspects of psychology within that appeal to try and get people to engage and actually report information. That's Fiona Gabbett, a professor of psychology and director of the Forensic Psychology Unit at Goldsmiths University of London. Forensic psychology is a relatively new field. It explores psychology, which is the science of behaviour, but within an investigative and legal context. So, for example, forensic psychologists might conduct psychological research that informs forensic investigations to support the gathering of reliable evidence, or they might design intervention programmes to use within a prison environment. It's a huge area, and our expertise really relates to the first part of investigating a crime. Like Carsten and Caroline, Professor Gabbett and her co-director, Dr Adrian Scott, run a cold case investigative team. We're working with some PhD students and some MSc forensic psychology students, and we're trying to develop an expertise in bettering missing persons investigations, and that includes cold case investigations. So how exactly 
can applying the principles of forensic psychology increase the likelihood of a public response to an appeal? From psychology, we know that memory fades over time. So we also wanted to provide some retrieval cues that help people remember where they were at that time, who they knew. And so to do that, we wanted to provide retrieval cues of what was going on in the early 1990s when he went missing. And so we provided people with cues such as key news stories at the time. There were IRA bombings at Heathrow. That was the year that Kurt Cobain committed suicide. And also what were the popular songs in the charts at the time? For example, Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything For Love. And then we encourage people to think back to that time. Who did they know? What were they doing? And the whole goal of this is to try and jog someone's memory for the man who was found. I'm sure you're familiar with the strange ability for a song or news event to trigger a host of associated memories. But what exactly is going on in our heads when this happens? Our episodic memory, which is also our autobiographic memory, it's It's an interconnected network of lots and lots of associated pieces of information. And so you remember one piece of information, it will jog your memory for another piece of information. You can try this for yourself. If I asked you to provide me with a list of old school friends, then you might do a reasonable job of thinking back. But if I helped you remember more information, for example... If I asked you, where did you go to school? What teachers did you have? What topics did you take? What did your classroom look like? And who did you sit next to? Who did you like? Who didn't you like? Were you a member of any sports clubs, for example? And gave you some time to really think back and activate all of those memories of you at that particular time. And then I asked you to provide me with a list of all your old school friends that you had lost touch with. I bet you that you would remember at least double. And that's what we're really trying to do with the appeal. We're trying to provide some retrieval cues so that people can think back to a certain time, activate some memories such as, oh, I remember that song being in the charts, or um, I remember these news headlines. And if we're lucky, then one of those associated details is going to be, oh, I remember this person that used to be in my social network who no longer is, and, and then we've, we've helped them remember somebody who might just match the identity of the person we're trying to find. On top of including retrieval cues from 1994, another aspect of the appeal that Professor Gabbett and her team advised on was the imagery to be used. When we were provided the information about the, the man that was found in the North Sea, one of the other teams had put together a facial reconstruction of what he looked like. And they, they had done a fantastic job. But the image that they had um, created was very photographic. And we were worried that by, by including an image that had a photographic likeness might make people look at it and then immediately dismiss it, thinking, I don't know this person. And so we encouraged them, instead of, of releasing that photographic image, to produce a drawing um, that represented the, the facial reconstruction, of course. But by presenting people with a drawing, um, we're asking people to look at it and think, does it remind you of anybody? Is it a likeness of anybody that you knew before? And in doing so, people are a little bit more lenient. They might look a, a little closer. Um, they might think, 
this person resembles this other person that I used to know and haven't seen for a very long time. Um, and so in the actual appeal that went out, that you'll find a, a drawing likeness of how the man might have looked in real life rather than this more photographic quality. The idea that a more realistic photo could result in less responses seems counterintuitive, but it's backed up by data. And that came from a, a background of research as well. Again, more so from forensic investigation. So sometimes there'll be a victim or a witness of a crime who will work with, um, with a sketch artist or work with certain software to put together an image of the person who attacked them, who committed the crime. And they found that when they were releasing more photographic type images, people were just dismissing it because it didn't have an exact likeness of somebody who they might knew. Whereas if they released drawings or caricatures of the person, then um, they were more likely to have people come forward saying, oh, yeah, that looks like so and so. And then they might get that investigative lead. Another tool that wasn't available to the original investigative team was social media. The new appeal has gone out to more traditional print outlets like newspapers and their digital counterparts. And in fact, it was the media which christened the man from the North Sea the gentleman in the first place. Social media, however, can bring this story to an audience of a size unfathomable in the mid-90s. And it is the investigative team's hope that the public can play a key role in deciphering the identity of the gentleman. There's one area in particular that they're quite keen to have feedback on, and that is the man's tie. The tie is not just a tie, and in Great Britain, they were also worn uh, as a sign of belonging to a certain private school or military organization. This is another way of identifying the man by the tie he wears. Do you know um, someone who knows a lot about about British ties? Is there a collector forum or museum or any other group of people who are interested in it or uh, are experts on ties? To reiterate, the tie is dark blue and features grey, brown, orange and green diagonal stripes. It's made of 100% wool and carries a label which features text in both English and French. You can see a picture of the tie, along with a more detailed breakdown of the label and the rest of the gentleman's clothing, on our website, themissingpodcast.org. Take a look. Are the colours and patterns in any way familiar? Do they remind you of any particular organisation, club or school? Whilst you're there, read the details of the case, as well as the retrieval cues, to help cast your mind back to the 90s. If you're not of the age to have known this person, then forward the details of this case onto someone who is. The gentleman had a family and friends, people who love him and don't know that he is their missing relative. Achim will be retiring this year and would very much like for this case to be solved. I just want to be able to to give this person a name and maybe give him back to their to his family. That's what I've got out of this case um, is that you know this person belongs to or is part of someone's family, and it would be nice to get to be able to give them back and and give give the unidentified um, person a name. 
Whilst we have centred our discussion in this podcast on the gentleman, there's another person whose identity is also being sought. That of his killer, or perhaps killers. Those responsible for the man's death have also thought for almost 30 years that the crime could never be sentenced. They assumed that their victim would never be found. They did not expect that the man had been buried in a cemetery in Wilhelmshaven for many years and that now, with the support of students from the police academy and British universities, an identification could succeed. For her victim, his life ended 30 years ago. For them, life went on. But the circumstances in their lives might also have changed in the last 30 years. They cannot longer be sure that they will not be held accountable for the crime. Once a victim has been identified, the step to clarifying a crime is often only a short one. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. We've put the details of this case on our website, themissingpodcast.org. On there, you'll find images and details, not just for this case, but for every case we featured on the show. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. The series is also made with the help of missing people, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116-000 or by emailing them at 116-000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Help us identify the gentleman and return his name to him after 28 long years. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. 
All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.